I'd like to talk a little bit and hopefully fill out what what we really mean, at least what I mean when I use words like image, fantasy, mythos, what I predominantly mean when I use words like image, fantasy, mythos. Uh, what what's included in that meaning and what an image is and also particularly the kinds of direction and inclination way of relating. Also, so I want to begin to fill that out and talk about it and shape it a little bit. And in the opening talk, if you remember, um, I sort of enumerated, listed, went through uh, relatively some, a list of relatively familiar uses of the imagination in, in life and practice that many of you will, will be familiar with or at least have heard of or, and, and, and that there's a, a range there, there's really a range in how people use, how imagination gets used uh, in different instances or by different people in some practices. And so just briefly again to to reiterate, there is the whole use of imagination for visioning, whether it's visioning the future of a retreat center like Guy House and where it wants to be in 20 years time, whether it's visioning a zero carbon future for society. <clears throat> uh, there's the use of the imagination in the contemplation of death and the contemplation of the body parts that the Buddha uh, teaches, instructs in the mindfulness uh, discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta. There's the use of imagination taking any object uh, that may not have any significance at all, like a candle or a stone or anything else, and uh, looking at it and then visualizing it internally just for the purposes of quietening the mind, gathering the focus for developing concentration. And then there's, for example, the use of the imagination in practices like metta or compassion, uh, where we imagine in some way, just however we can, the so-called benefactor or friend or a so-called neutral person. Uh, and we imagine this person as the image of them. And it's really just an aid. The imagination there is just an aid to cultivating this quality in our heart so that it's got an object and we can direct the metta and in that way our heart's uh, quality of metta, the, uh, that quality is cultivated, is nourished through that practice using the imagination. And then there's the use uh, of, of an image of say Kuan Yin or Jesus or Mary or uh, Tara, could, could be anything, uh, and some kind of figure or deity and really what's happening there or a big part of what's happening is we hold that image in the imagination <clears throat> and starts to not resonate with the qualities of of compassion let's say if it's Kuan Yin or Jesus and uh, in that way those qualities those same qualities that that deity or that figure embodies, manifests, expresses, those qualities get empowered in our heart. So oftentimes the imagination is used for that purpose in that direction. 
And then there are instances in the Pali Canon where the Buddha recommends uh, a practice called recollection of the Buddha, uh, which again involves imagination, um, and that can bring inspiration when there's uh, lack of inspiration or energy when there's lack of energy. So it's serving that purpose. Some of you will be familiar with using an image or a memory uh, to trigger uh, feelings of well-being, feelings of joy or happiness even, or energy in the body. And people often use that as a little trick when they're doing samadhi practice, and it's completely fine. Uh, The image then can be let go of uh, in those instances once the feeling of rapture or happiness or whatever is is established a little bit that becomes the focus so the image is just a stepping stone to something else and then there's a possibility of using the imagination to come into dialogue with for example the inner critic the superego some critical inner character letting it constellate as an image as a as an as an imaginal figure can be very, very fruitful to work with that kind of oppressive um, inner psychic structure. And just as an aside, it's, I've mentioned this in other talks, other retreats, but we tend to think, oh, dialoguing with images and having relationships with imaginal figures will make me crazy. Um, psychologists actually investigate this stuff, find it's the opposite, find people who suffer, say, from schizophrenia or psychotic delusions, tend to have vague imaginal presences which they don't actually relate to. And rather they turn away from. Similarly with the inner critic, oftentimes we're turning away from the inner critic rather than turning towards it and establishing, entering into relationship. So the craziness, if we can even use that word, um, or the mental disturbance comes more from not being in relationship, from turning away from relationship, from the vagueness, the lack of sensitivity and filling out of the relationship. And the healing comes through actually turning towards and relating uh, and uh, entering into relationship with an imaginal figure. And then there's other psychotherapeutically functioning images, all kinds, that might help support one's personal growth and personal healing, for example, in gestalt psychology or psychosynthesis and other other, other, um, psychotherapeutic, modern psychotherapeutic traditions. And then there's a whole realm of extrasensory perception, etc. So all of that's very fine and in a way we're open to all of that here and you're using all of that as as much or as little as you, as you like. And we made the point as well in the opening talk and just to repeat it again that always in any of those cases in each and any of those cases there's always a conception, a way of conceiving of the images that's involved. So for example in the candle as I said it's just insignificant what it actually is, uh, for the most part, or stone or whatever. Um, in the visioning of Guy House's future, we're talking about something very practical. That's part of the conception. Um, or the contemplating of death, we're talking about this material decay, etc., etc. So there's a great range in the conceiving of the images, and there's always conceiving involved. 
And always included in that conceiving is the direction and purpose and the particular kinds of use of, of the image. So that's a general fundamental point that's really important to realize. And again, we make the point that we are free to conceive and use of images however we want, really. And certainly on this retreat, I'm open to most most things, let's say. Um, <clears throat> but we have freedom there. Now, as I said, now in this talk tonight, what I really want to expand a little bit on, fill out for us a little bit, is what do, what do we mean on this retreat? What do I mean when I use words like image, fantasy, mythos? So what do I include in the meaning of those words when I use them, uh, or predominantly when I use them? And because, to be honest, like many words, uh, I uh, will use them sloppily at times and more precisely at others. But this is really what I mean mostly. Uh, yeah, let's say mostly. Uh, so what I include in that meaning, and also the particular inclination that I'm most interested in developing. So this is what um, uh, what I'm really interested in, in relation to this word, when I use the word image. So there's quite a few things, uh, quite a few aspects here. Let's just start. If you recall the Im imagination exercise we did, the brief imagination exercise from this afternoon, um, and I hope that one of the conclusions that you uh, realized from that was that an image, as I might use it, that word, is not necessarily visual. This is absolutely fundamental. It's not necessarily visual. It may be, and that's fine, but it may not be. So it may be aural. It may be that the image is predominantly or includes something that we hear. We hear a voice uh, in the inner ear, so to speak, um, and in the imagination. And we perhaps even dialogue. Uh, so, so it's maybe entirely aural or partly aural, auditory. Some people, so another example of that, apart from voices and dialogues, another example would be some people, many people in fact, um, as the meditation deepens for them, as the mind becomes a bit more still, they start to hear a kind of um, high-pitched, uh, like a buzzing sound. And this has different names in different traditions. Some people call it the nada sound, which nada just means sound in Sanskrit, so it's a sound sound, the nada sound. People give it no significance at all, or give it great cosmic spiritual significance, or something in between. Some people are irritated by it, some people love it. Uh, you can use it in different ways. But one of the ways uh, which is possible is actually to, when this sound arises, or if it arises, it doesn't arise for everyone, um, one option is actually to deliberately hear it um, as, uh, for example, the cosmic uh, the, the compassion of the cosmic Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This is someone who was practicing uh, loving kindness and compassion, and someone for whom that sort of language and that sort of conception or image, they were very comfortable with that. And then this sound was arising. I suggested, well, you could hear this sound, which as it goes on feels like it's actually permeating, doesn't actually feel like it's originating in the head. The sense of it is that it uh, permeates the air, the atmosphere, the space. 
And so in that case, there's a deliberately incorporating that sound and deliberately hearing it as uh, the, the compassion, the pervasive cosmic compassion of the Buddhas and the uh, the cosmic bodhisattvas. So the sound itself becomes an image. Uh, it was just a sound before, and we were hearing it this way or that way, or irritating or not interested or whatever, but potentially we can have a different relationship with it where it becomes an image in the sense that I mean it, because it becomes imbued with meaning and depth and resonance, etc. So the sound, a pure sound, if you like, or just a simple sound, becomes an image. So it doesn't have to be visual, could be aural predominantly or partly, could also be mostly in the body. The image is not visual, not aural, but mostly in the body. Now sometimes we're putting a lot of emphasis on the energy body and sometimes that energy body can feel, for example, that it fills with energy, fills with power. A feeling, an energetic feeling of power comes into the energy body and then an image from that uh, body sense can come, but it's more a body sense image, for example, of a powerful animal or a wrathful deity or a demonic figure from some kind of cosmology or something. It might not be seen. It's more felt. The body actually feels its way into the inside of that powerful animal or deity. So I remember some time ago I uh, was actually... I think I was doing walking meditation on the lawn, I can't remember, uh, when it started, but a series of images where uh, this tiger appeared. Now, it was, part, it was partly visual in this case, but predominantly it had a very different uh, dominant uh, sense to it. Um, this tiger was by its nature a very, let's call it a very sensuous creature. So it was a sensuous tiger. It had a very uh, direct sensuous relationship with its own body. And I sort of entered into that tiger and its bodily experience so that Rather than the vision being the primary modality there, the primary sense modality, the body was the primary sense modality. And this tiger, as I said, was very sensuous, very much enjoying its body, its heaviness, its strength, its slowness, its power. There was pleasure in that, in the sense of its body, even the way it rested on the thick trunk of a tree was was oozing uh, this enjoyment of the, of the sensuousness of its body. Actually, later, so I was really entering into that and really, it wasn't, it wasn't really, really strong or vivid as an image, but I stayed with it and it developed gradually over time. And then actually, it, uh, interesting that I did because it had two other sort of chapters to it. One was it started to eat my, my intestines. Uh, sort of devour my entrails, which felt incredibly healing. So there was a kind of, uh, uh, instead of me being identified with a tiger, it then approached me and ate my intestines, uh, which was wonderful and very, very healing feeling. And then later, which I won't really go into now, may come back to this, um, it's as if that quality of physical sensuousness um, 
then started to inform and imbue my perception of nature in a very particular way. So I don't mean, ah, the sense of the breeze on the cheek or the, uh, the, the, the some other, the, the feet, the, the uh, step of the bare feet on the grass or whatever. I'm, I actually mean sensuous in a more erotic sense, um, but we'll, we'll come back to that perhaps later. Uh, the point is really that the, the image was predominantly a body sense of sensuality and also that it developed. Now sometimes an image uh, is, is not even a, any kind of sense object of any of the five senses at all. Um, and this is quite interesting and perhaps quite common. So it doesn't have to be uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch necessarily. I had a dream some time ago and um, in the last sort of portion of this dream, I was uh, playing playing a grand piano um, outside somewhere in in a, in a war torn country, and there was a big wall, and it was the piano was next to the wall, at twenty twenty five feet high, and I could tell that that um, the wall was about to be bombed by an aircraft, uh, drop a bomb or missiles at it or something. But there, I was playing this music, and there was this feeling, despite the impending bombing, that it's really okay because of the music. And there was this absolutely beautiful music. I don't know what it was. I'd never heard it before. The psyche is so creative from its depths to conjure uh, the most extraordinary beauty. And this music was filling uh, the space. Beautiful, beautiful music. And it's okay uh, that, it, that the, the war will be bombed and maybe I will even die there because there was music. And somehow this music, in a strange sort of dreamlike fashion, had a physical directionality to it, like a kind of jagged arrow in the direction I was supposed to follow anyway, the physical direction. Um, and being bombed or being burned uh, or even dying, it was okay. And then the words came in the dream, because it's the music that matters. And that really touched me. It's the music that matters, matters more than anything else. And so I took that image um, and I worked with it in the meditation in the morning. Uh, it's not really a visual image. It wasn't really, it sort of uh, peeled itself away, the image. It's the music that matters. That phrase became kind of pregnant with meaning and depth and resonances. Um, peeled itself away from the visual images of the dream, peeled itself also away from the uh, music, of the, the specific music of the dream, the auditory. So it was not a visual image. It was not even a particularly oral image at that point, aural image. Um, but more going into the sense of music, music mattering, uh, and something about that. What is it? What, what was music? Hard to put your finger on a totally described in words. It's a symbol, an image, and a lot to do with beauty. The, the, the symbol here of music that came alive and had so much depth had to do with beauty, had to do with a sense almost of life as music, and a sense of, with it, um, a devotional sense of aligning 
devoting, letting go into that, um, devoting my life to that, life as beauty, as music, this mystery, and that being the important thing, and uh, the devotion to that, the loving that, the expressing that also, and communicating that to others, this music. I don't mean just literal music. I mean this music and everything that that means symbolically, beauty, and more. It's impossible to fully express. But prioritizing that, aligning with it, devoting to it, letting go into it, communicating, expressing it, that was so beautiful and rich and pregnant and deep as an image that was not, did not really belong to any sense. It was a symbol, any of the five senses. It was a symbol that was very alive, very, very, very meaningful and soulful. But all of this is, is really to make the point for imaginal practice that when images come, we need to notice what is the primary or the dominant sense avenue of this image for me, and actually to trust that. So if it feels like it's primarily auditory or through the body or whatever, however I know or perceive that image, I trust that. I trust the primary, I notice and I trust the primary or the dominant sense avenue. And again, perhaps uh, it was clear from the little exercise we did this afternoon, it's not necessary for the sensual detail of the sensory detail of the image to be that clear. It may be, and maybe that's important in some instances, but the kind of pixel resolution, or whatever it's called, on computer screens, that's actually not that important, often, often. Sometimes it is, but usually it's not. And sometimes it's not even necessary that it's a clear, defined object. The image sense is very, very potent, and very deep and meaningful, without actually crystallizing or constellating as a clear object. This is the image. I see that image as an object, or I hear it as a sound object, or whatever. So really, as I said, what I want to include in, in the word image is something broader than certainly just a visual object. And then secondly, it's not necessary, as again, probably clear from many of the examples, it's not necessary that and, uh, we dialogue with images. So sometimes some people are familiar with work uh, in therapy, etc., where you dialogue with images. It's not necessary at all. I mean, it may, an image may involve or invite dialogue. And that's also, that's interesting. Sometimes that dialogue seems to happen at a sort of normal pace that one would normally dialogue with someone. Sometimes it happens even slow enough that a person can even write, write the dialogue down as it's happening. So it may involve dialogue. It may be in that kind of way. Well, sometimes it involves dialogue uh, I find, and other people find, sometimes it involves dialogue, but it's a sort of intuited dialogue. You couldn't possibly uh, write it down that fast, and you couldn't possibly even speak that fast. It's just we intuit what this imaginal figure is saying to us in our response, etc. So it may involve dialogue, or it may not. An image may not. It does not have to. Are you assuming, perhaps, that 
it's better if it does. So that's an interesting assumption. I assume that it's better if I can dialogue with this image. And maybe I even assume that the longer the dialogue, the better. Or better even if the image just gives a monologue to me, just imparts its wisdom as a sort of very wise speech, and I absorb that and listen. Uh, so maybe all these things, maybe, but just careful of the assumptions around that. Or notice at least what the assumptions are. Ibn Arabi was a great, um, a great uh, Islamic uh, mystic, sage, and and scholar. In fact, I think um, I think he was in the twelfth century. I'll have to check that. Um, but he talked about specific the kind of images that he was interested in, and he said they do not answer meaning they as these imaginal figures, they do not answer in articulated speech because then their discourse would be other than their essence, than their person. No, their apparition, their coming, is identical to their discourse. It is their discourse itself, and the discourse is their visible presence. Okay, so he's emphasizing visible. Uh, we don't have to. But the point is that for him, the dialogue is, is something that, that actually shouldn't be there because the image itself is what needs to be expressed. It's not that the image comes and expresses something extra. And just So we can be broader, and because sometimes there's dialogue, sometimes there isn't. It doesn't have to be, and it can happen in different ways. But really important to know, and again, I hope the examples make this clear, um, that other ways of interacting, apart from verbal dialogue, other ways of interacting, communicating, and knowing an image, an imaginal figure, uh, may be more appropriate than dialogue. So talking or listening to an image, um, it may be more that... um, the, the love, the flow of love, or even the flow of eros, the flow of, of, of some kind of sexual um, interaction or connection with the image is much more appropriate than verbal dialogue. It may be. But just to, again, to include, to expand our sense of what uh, is included um, in imaginal work. Now, one thing that's really key uh, for me, when I use this word, these words image, fantasy, mythos, one thing that's really characteristic that I want to stress is, is a quality of soulfulness, that the image has or feeds or nourishes within us soulfulness. I'm going to devote a whole talk at least to what I mean by that and the importance of that. But let's say for now what this word soulfulness means is resonances, the energetic emotional, psychological resonances um, uh, of that image in our being. The image is pregnant with these resonances energetically, emotionally, psychologically. It's full of meaningfulness, pregnant with meaningfulness, which is an interesting word. I use that word deliberately uh, in contradistinction to the word meaning or uh, in differentiation from the word meaning. So I don't mean the image means X or it means Y. I mean it's full of meaningfulness, Uh, a sense of meaningfulness that I can't quite box in or explain or get to the bottom of. 
So meaningfulness, multiple resonances, we're touched. There's a sense of beauty. Beauty is also part of soulfulness, a sense of depth, a sense of enchantment. This is all characteristic of this quality of soulfulness, which itself is characteristic of images in the way that I want to use that word image or mythos or fantasy. So understanding then, feeling like I fully understand this image, is not necessary. Sometimes a person doesn't feel like they understand at all, and yet something is touched, deeply touched, or there's a deep sense of beauty or enchantment or meaningfulness even without understanding. The resonances are there, the soulfulness is there. So also... An image is not uh, understood concretely in, in the sense that I mean image. And we're not really taking them concretely. I once was talking uh, many years ago uh, to a woman, and um, and she was actually she was actually a, a kind of evangelical Christian, but she was she was very lovely, and we were talking, and she she mentioned to me I uh, I saw. God's cloak, uh, his majestic cloak, um, uh, in in her prayers uh, the the day before or something like that. I can't remember. I remember she said, I saw this, but there was something in the way she was talking about it that made me feel uh, that she was actually taking this really concretely. That actually somewhere or other, God, there was a God, and He had this cloak, and it was exactly as she uh, looked at. And there was some sense that she wasn't quite understand this is imaginal reality if we, if we use that word and that's different than concrete reality so in the use of the word image I, I, I don't mean uh, to, to, that they be taken concretely or literally so an image of a warrior which is a very common one for me or has been in the past or an image of a wanderer a solitary wonder again has been in the past very common for me. Um, it doesn't uh, literally uh, translate. I would never, uh, certainly would not think I would ever join the army, and I, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever, um, well, not for a very, very, very long time, ever even hit anyone, except in my early. Uh, ch childhood um, it's not somewhere I go the, the image is not literal to become a warrior or to, or to go wandering uh, like that or to go traveling it's not a literal image so images in the sense I'm using that word are are actually we could say metaphorical but more than met more than the word metaphor has come to mean for us because in a way that word's shrunken a little bit it's uh, so I mean it even even bigger than what the word metaphor means. We don't decipher images. Uh, they are not Im an image is not a cipher to be deciphered, to be explained. It means this. Oh, that's what it represents. So there's something here more akin to a poetic image, uh, which I don't think... A poetic, the poetic images that are most powerful are not images to be deciphered to be, ah, I figured it out, this code. Uh, that's a poor poetic image. It's not uh, deep and pregnant and inexhaustible. So poetry that's really t 
touching for us, that stays with us, that's powerful and powerful in its effects, um, it's, it's, or an image, is alive in the psyche and it stays alive partly because it's not reducible, because we don't reduce it to it means this or that, it represents this or that. There's a beautiful poem that I love by Rumi, it begins, Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. Lovely. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. For me, at least in the way I relate to to that line of poetry, um, and that's important because this is very subjective, uh, as we're going to talk about with images, but those with the orchard, the light, the wine, the, the pomegranates, etc., the flowers, uh, these are not the elements of, the, of, of, of that poetic image are not, so to speak, signs for some spiritual facts. Ah, yes, the light represents this, the wine represents um, the, the bliss, and the pomegranate flowers represent the gods something or other, you know. Um, they're not signs for spiritual facts, nor are they only material. To, to, at least in the way I relate, he's, he's definitely not pointing to just um, a sort of material level of um, appreciation of, of nature. There's something, more, for me, there's something more there that's endlessly pregnant, that, that, that line of poetry. Um, there's something that touches in those images deeply, uh, that resonates, that sets up multiple resonances. It... An image or, or that's alive in this way, or a poetic image that's alive for us, will then influence our perspectives um, and the way we come into contact uh, with with material things, or those particular material things as spiritual things. So the images influence our perspective on on the material and the spiritual, but they don't represent those things necessarily. Represent some other things, some other entities. There's something about uh, poetic images, which is really what I'm talking about when I use the word image, myth, or style. There's a poetic quality that they're open, they're ambiguous. I cannot, we cannot figure them out completely. And this is really important because the mystery of the image, its mystery, this sense of not being able to completely figure them out, um, means that it stays alive for us. It stays alive and works in the psyche and has its resonance. It's, it's, it's got a vitality to it. So the mystery is actually, or, or the mystery of the image, of, of the poetic image, of the imaginal uh, practice image, is part of what keeps it alive. And it's also alive, in a way, because of the importance of images for the psyche. So the psyche... I think needs images is very important for the psyche and that's part of what keeps it alive. Actually, I, sh- I should say when, it, when you use the word poetic image um, maybe it's helpful for you but uh, y- you know, poetry these days has, has such a broad range and scope. Different poets or people who read poetry relate very differently to what they consider good or bad, but what they're looking for in a poem, what the, what a poem is trying to do, or what poetry should be, etc. So that um, 
depending on what you're into, that may or may not uh, help in understanding what I'm getting at. So a poet like, I don't know, Philip Larkin is is very, very different um, in his, well, in his relationship to poetry and his relationship to image and also in his relationship to life, it seems to me, than a poet like T.S. Eliot or Pablo Neruda or, I don't know, George Seferis or something. There's quite a range there. But I hope you can get a little bit of a sense of what I mean when I say poetic image, poetic nature of image. And there's also, we can talk about poetic truth. So, uh, when Mary Oliver says, um, I can't remember the exact line, but my love for that poet is like a garden in my heart. Uh, no one's going to actually look for um, soil and flowers in her heart. There's a poetic truth to that. And we recognize this poetic truth. We resonate with it. It moves us. We don't mistake it for something concretely real. So this soulfulness is very uh, centrally characteristic, fundamental to the way I'm using the words image, mythos, um, fantasy. And the more poetic, if you like, nature of images, uh, metaphorical, not literal, not concrete, ambiguous. Jung, in fact, wrote um, genuine symbols. I mean, he's using the word symbol here, but let's, um, let's, uh, in, in this instance, he means the same thing as image. So genuine images, genuine symbols are ambiguous, full of half-glimpsed meanings, and in the last resort, inexhaustible. So that's exactly... Uh, part of the characteristic of what I'm talking about. Now we can also make another distinction or, or um, point out that uh, along these lines that um, some images or fantasies are what we could call narrative in, in distinct contradistinction to this more poetic images or what I would call iconic images. So there's narrative images or iconic poetic images. So an iconic poetic image, um, it may, uh, or rather it, it, it doesn't, it's not so much about the sequential unfolding of events. Um, this happened, this narrative unfolded in time. Um, sometimes an image comes and it just stays as it is, and this is sort of resonating with that. It doesn't really go anywhere, it doesn't evolve in time very much at all. Uh, or if it does, it's not so much in its, in its temporal evolution that there's a kind of um, causal implication. This happened, and, and therefore this happened. Or because this happened, that happened. Um, this happened first, and because of that, that happened. There's not this causal implication in the narrative. And so that's this non-sequentiality, non-narrative, non-causally implicating in time, that's characteristic of more iconic poetic images. There's a kind of timelessness to them. So usually we tend to um, certainly read or view often uh, one's own life, our own life, in terms of causal implications. I'll get back to this later in the retreat, but with a different sensibility regarding images and their more timeless, atemporal, sort of eternal qualities, that can also begin to come into the way we read and view and see 
our life as image as well, not just in the usual narrative sense, in the usual causally implicating sense. So iconic poetic images have this timeless quality to them often, uh, in contrast to narrative images. And there's something also in these images that's bigger than just the, the purely personal or the purely um, historical. They're not, they're not necessarily historical at all. Sometimes uh, they, they may feel like they are. We have, sometimes have a sense that the, the, the history of our life is mirroring the images rather than the other way around. The image is mirroring the history. Again, this, this kind of shift 180 degrees in, in the way we're seeing life in images. It's part of the fruit, part of the beautiful, beautiful, mysterious fruit that can come from imaginal practice as I'm wanting to incline it. But with these iconic, poetic uh, kinds of images, there's, as I said, this timelessness, this lot in, very personal, but more than the personal, more than the historical, not necessarily historical. And there's a depth to them, and they feel fertile, and they seem to kind of have a kind of intentionality. There's something they want. This is something I'm going to come back to in a, in a whole separate talk. And there's a kind of feeling of necessity. There's some necessity. This image, I may not understand it at all, but it feels necessary somehow. It feels right. So not to make narrative images wrong um, and poetic images right, but, but we are leaning towards more the iconic poetic style rather than narrative. Well, actually, it's a spectrum. And more, more or less narrative or non-narrative. There's a spectrum there. But part of what this implies is that it's um, not images that we have in imaginal practice may not necessarily be very eventful or dramatic. As I said, sometimes not much happens at all, and one's just with a certain image and kind of resonating with that and the sense of the beauty and the, uh, the, the complexity of that, the, the richness of it for the soul. When I first started exploring imaginal practice uh, some years ago, um, the, the first, I don't know how long, but the, the images were incredibly eventful, and this happened, and then we moved here, and then this wizard appeared, and then we slayed a dragon, and, and, and you know, rich in some ways, but, but as, as things evolved, actually um, a lot less eventful, and yet much richer. A lot less dramatic in, in some ways, for some of the images, but more um, soulful. And with that too, an image doesn't have to be really far out, like, wow, that's, that's amazing, wow, that's so strange. So I remember uh, some years ago, I actually can't remember how many years ago, um, practicing imaginal practice, and, and a very um, striking, in some ways striking image, um, came. It was um, a sort of empty courtyard, a, a, a square courtyard of a monastery, a large courtyard, um, empty except for four black-robed figures with their black monastic robes and the black hoods over their heads so you couldn't see their faces. And they were pallbearers carrying on a sort of um, stretcher between them, these four, these four monks, um, carrying on, the, on a stretcher between them a, uh, an open coffin. And in the coffin was a dead baby, 
And from this dead baby's head, this tree was growing. And, uh, you know, if you describe it, it's like, wow, that's a intense image. Um, and it had a certain intensity to it, I suppose. Like you would say, oh, it looks like a Tarkovsky film or something. But, but in a way, it, it didn't really have much resonance in my soul. Maybe in the future that it comes back again or something, but it was a kind of far-out image, but without really much soulfulness to it. Uh, compare that with um, an image I had uh, much more recently of, um, uh, just on the theme of trees, it was a, 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 a low-branched, a black-bark tree, um, not very tall but quite wide, just the height of a person, completely leafless and and pitch black, uh, as if it had been burnt or charred, but I don't think it had. And it's not, although it has no leaves and it looks black like this and leafless, it's not actually there's anything wrong with it, uh, was the sense. And sometimes that did actually grow from my, my prone body, my body lying down, sometimes from the body of a, a close friend, and sometimes from neither, just in the ground. And I was thinking, I don't understand this at all, but somehow it was making me extraordinarily happy. There was a lot of joy um, from, from this tree, uh, or in relationship to this tree. And it's just there, and... I and others um, in the image visited it uh, just to be around this tree. And it was kind of like a pilgrimage. Um, and we tended to the tree and watered it. But actually it didn't even need watering, but it was part of our devotion. So less striking as an image than that sort of uh, dead body with with dead baby with the, with the tree growing out of its head, etc., but the second image was much more uh, felt richer for the soul. So maybe an image is far out and has a sort of uh, striking narrative structure to it, but there's not much soulfulness coming out of it. So that's not really necessarily what we're interested in. The far outness can be a whole, it can be far out, cannot be far out, can be narrative or cannot be, but it's really the quality of soulfulness I'm going to emphasize in other talks. Um, that's what we're after. So I remember uh, a lovely image <clears throat> from a couple of years ago, perhaps I can't remember exactly when, um, in meditation, this, this very silent white horse gently approached me. And it uh, moves its head the way horses do. It wants to get my attention, uh, but not, not for its sake. It wants to get it, my attention for my sake somehow. And it wants, me, it wants me to go with it. It wants to carry me. It wants for me to be carried and to travel with it somehow, somewhere. And there's such a sense of profound beauty uh, somehow in this image and of intimacy. There's real love there. Such... Uh, exquisite, tender, compassionate love, actually both ways, from the horse to me and from me to the horse. And tenderness and peace um, suffused my being from this love and from that relating. And somehow this horse was supporting in, in, in some very subtle way. I, I got a sense of support. It gives me, it was giving me a certain kind of strength. I couldn't even quite say what. But it was clear this horse does not, it doesn't represent this or that. Although, it did seem to have certain qualities. Uh, 
um, it was imbued with certain qualities. It seems to embody, seemed to embody, for example, a certain kind of, of bravery, this horse, but very humble and not in your face, and, and also doggedness, persistence. It was not flashy, um, though I was aware, I had the intuition that this horse was capable of great speed, great power, and uh, very powerful sexuality as well. But the bravery had nothing to do with uh, sort of gaining glory or anything like that in the human sense. And then at one point he, he became uh, a magical flying horse and uh, took me on his back and uh, was flying and I my, stretched my arms out wide. It was like a crucifix pose almost and uh, very, very open and uh, flying through vast space, everything became translucent. Okay, so that's a bit more far out, that bit. But um, but there's such beauty and depth and soulfulness just in that initial um, part of the image. Uh, that's really, those kinds of qualities are really what, what I'm wanting to emphasize. So again, it doesn't really represent anything, but it's in the relating, the love, that's what felt important there. So it's not an allegory, it's not reducible to some some simple meaning or definable as this or that. It's the presence of that image, the character, the quality, the intimacy, the contact and the love. And also the interest. So this horse was somehow interested in me, this beautiful silent white horse, and I was interested in it. And it's that, uh, those qualities in the relating that make for the soulfulness. So there's narrative versus I iconic or poetic images, and that's a uh, important distinction or spectrum. There's also another spectrum, uh, it's significant, but we're open to the whole range of it, and that is um, what we might call the spectrum of substantiality of an image. So some images appear very insubstantial. They're almost like made of light, the characters. They're very, um, not even airy, just energetic or light bodies or luminous, very ethereal. And some other images are very, they have a very um, more earthy, solid sense to them. And so all of that is available to us and all of it is good. But just to notice um, the, 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 the kind of where an image is on that spectrum, we may come back to that aspect. Uh, it's good to point out, I think here, that most images uh, need repeating. Um, occasionally there's an image that really has a big um, impact, uh, but uh, it's just a one-off. So one, uh, one, one student told me there was actually an image of me. I was already alive for her as an image for a while, but then there was a particular image of um, uh, me approaching her, my head in this image exploding. And um, in, in the explosion of my head, or through the explosion of my head in the image, um, it, was, it was actually really transformative in terms of the, the, the freedom and the sense of liberation that, that came with that and stayed for quite a, uh, or stayed at a certain level in her being after that. But mostly, mostly images need repeating. They're not just one-offs, they're something one-offs. We, we, we come back to them, we resonate with them, we, we stew with them, we invite them back. Um, so that what's happening here is kind of small movements, cumulative movements, um, through 
practicing with with an image uh, gradually um, a different sensibility happens um, not just through one image but through whatever images come up but but repeating repeating gradually a different sensibility and as I alluded to in the opening talk gradually a different conception as well as sensibility sensibility and conception of practice of self of uh, life of the world so somehow through this repeating and stewing and resonating and dwelling with and feeling and being sensitive to a different sensibility and a different conception of practice self life and, and world so there's a question uh, he, and that's really, to me, what's the most important thing. That, that, that um, allowing or opening of this different sensibility and this, this, this different possibilities of conceiving and perceiving self, life and world and dharma. But there's, uh, wrapped up in that, there's questions about pacing, whether we just have this image and then we move to another one. And uh, the, Usually, uh, as I said, we want to dwell, we really want to dwell with an image when it's there and really focus on it. We're not sort of just drifting with images and daydreaming. So we focus with an image, but also there's a question of um, going back to an image, like coming back to a piece of music that you love and um, dwelling in the in the whole vibe and the, all the resonances that that, that music b- brings for you. We don't just, <clears throat> this is something Thomas More said, we'll come back to it. We don't just listen to a piece of music and, and, and say, oh, I've listened to that before, I don't need to listen to it again. If you love it, you want to listen to it again. You want to be in that atmosphere of that music and what it evokes and what it brings up and what it does, the magic of the music, the magic of the image. So most images need repeating, and it's also important to point out um, that images, again, I hope some of the examples make this clear, images uh, don't only arise in meditation, they don't necessarily arise in meditation. So it can, uh, images can arise actually anywhere at any time, and that's different from having a hallucination. I hope that's clear. A hallucination means I can't actually tell what's what, what's an image and what's a concrete, solid uh, reality. So we're not talking about hallucination, but it's quite possible that um, images arise not only in meditation, but anywhere, at any time, in fact. Um, So one person was telling me that uh, they were actually listening to a public lecture in a hall and um, she found this lecture um, uh, rather stupid and and a little bit offensive, in fact, um, what the person was saying. Uh, And yet it seemed to her that all the people around her, in fact, she was correct in this assumption, uh, uh, most of the people around her seemed to think it was absolutely brilliant and wise. Um, And so she was in this situation where she felt that it was quite stupid and and a bit offensive and uh, differing from the opinion of those around her. And then an image that had arisen for her before of a phoenix, a very powerful, beautiful bird that had multiple resonances and came in different situations. Suddenly this phoenix came as she was listening to this lecture and it filled the room. 
enormous uh, size it was, this huge phoenix filling this large hall, uh, magnificent, she said, and, and completely untroubled by the stupidity of what she was hearing. These are her words. Um, and she said it didn't, this phoenix was so magnificent, it didn't condescend to, to sort of scrap with such folly. Uh, she said this phoenix shattered the hall with its sheer beauty. And so this was very, very vividly, intensely, powerfully present as she was sitting there listening with her eyes open. So silent, this phoenix, majestic, noble, immovable, and dignified. So not in silent meditation with the eyes closed. Actually, that's an image that I'm going to return to for another reason uh, later on in the retreat. Um, but the point here is that images don't necessarily arise only in meditation. They can arise anytime. So let's make another distinction, an image a little more subtle now, a little more involved. An image uh, may or may not have what we might call archetypal or mythic dimensions to it. So this is a little bit more involved. Um, what do we mean here? So you get more archetypal, mythic kind of images, if you like, uh, or, or that, that have that, that quality, that dimensionality, that aspect, that depth to them, and ones that are not. Um, as an example of a non-archetypal image that was still incredibly uh, potent and incredibly healing, I'll tell you a story that someone related to me. And By the way, with all these um, sharing of other people's images, I always ask, uh, the person if they're okay with uh, with their image or their story being shared uh, would never just go ahead and share something without asking. So this was in an interview some years ago at Guy House. The person was on a long um, personal retreat, uh, work retreat and personal retreat mixture. And something happened in relation to the work, I think. I can't even quite remember what it was. But something happened, and it triggered for her feelings of guilt. Um, and she could she noticed, she could see, she recognized a pattern of a tendency to feel guilty in situations. So something would go wrong, and she would feel guilty. And then she recounted to me, very, um, very moving in an interview, she recounted to me that many years ago, many years before this, she got pregnant to her husband, uh, but she didn't tell him immediately because he had been diagnosed as being infertile, unable to um, to bear uh, raise children to impregnate, whatever the word is. Um, he was diagnosed as infertile, so she didn't tell him because actually that diagnosis of infertility, that infertility had painfully ended his previous marriage. So she really wanted to be sensitive with it. And she didn't want to raise his hopes and then disappoint him if the, pre if the, uh, if the pregnancy miscarried as it wasn't yet uh, 10 or 12 weeks into the pregnancy. And then one morning at that time, uh, she they woke up and she wanted to make love. They were lying in bed. She wanted to make love, and they did. And so he was a little late leaving the house. And she wanted to say, as he left, drive carefully because we need you. We meaning her and the baby in, in, her, in her belly, in her womb. 
Drive carefully because we need you. And she wanted to say that as he left, but she didn't. Now, he actually had a habit of driving fast anyway. And now, because they had made love in the morning, he was later than usual this morning. And he drove too fast. And he got into an accident. And later the police and the witnesses said it was actually his fault. He was driving too fast. And he was killed in the accident. He died. And this, uh, this person was, uh, the, the student recounting this, she was absolutely heartbroken and uh, felt unable then to mother the child uh, on her own and she uh, decided to have an abortion. And that decision too, uh, so she, she actually felt painful guilt uh, come uh, and remain for, for years on both accounts, both that she had delayed him um, and she didn't say drive carefully and also that she had the abortion. And then in meditation one day, she uh, she was actually doing predominantly metta practice at that point, but in the, in, in the meditation she told the baby, the baby that was aborted, she told the baby sorry and that she really hoped that it would find a loving mother and father. And she explained that she had wanted to spare it the pain of not having a father, which is actually how she had grown up. As her father had died when she was just two. And the child in the image responded to her and told her, this is someone who actually does get quite a lot of dialogue in their image voices, the child told her um, with love, with a lot of love, told her that it felt sad about it, but it was okay and it was at peace. So it was very, very significant. And then later, so she explained this to me, and later in a different uh, session, perhaps the next day or a few days later, I can't remember, she thought, she thought to herself, what if I had spoken those words out loud to my husband? And then spontaneously, um, in the image, he, in, he turned back and came back and they had an intimate, deep conversation in, in the image. And then later still, the image of him arose spontaneously and he joyously, happily getting into his, this is her word, her frizzy uh, cabriolet sports car. And uh, that was the image of, of him joyously getting into the car. And she was trying to do meta practice, so she tried to come back to the meta practice and refocus on on the meta meditation and the phrases of the meta. But then she decided to just give attention and sensitivity to that image um, of her husband and him getting into the car and having the conversation. And that was incredibly helpful and healing, very very profoundly healing. So what is what is happening in an image like that? She was under no illusion that her husband was uh, and her baby were, were dead. Uh, she certainly wasn't avoiding feelings. There, were, there had been plenty of grief, and she was okay with the grief. And somehow, this reimagining of it that occurred semi-spontaneously, uh, somehow that was mysteriously and deeply healing. So very beautiful and important and touching example um, but it's an example of what I would call a non-archetypal kind of image 
Uh, now, sometimes there's images that are sort of a little bit ambiguous. So, for example, um, the subtle body, the energy body, there may be an image of the, that subtle body being on fire, of fire shooting from various energy centers or shooting from the hands or the images of the, 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 the body roaring. In itself, that's not necessarily archetypal, or but it could easily go towards archetypal images, fire and roaring and great power and that kind of, and it could, could move towards that very easily. Other images, for instance, that solitary wanderer or the warrior image that I've alluded to on different occasions, um, people often say, oh, those are archetypal images. There's archetypal image of the wanderer or the warrior. But what, do, what does that word really mean um, when we use that word archetypal? So I want to go into this a little bit. Um, so again, Jung, uh, who actually I think originated that word in, in its psychological usage, um, said, he wrote, archetypes are typical forms of behavior which naturally present themselves as ideas and images. By way of these effects, we discover that they have an organizing influence on the contents of consciousness. So the typical forms of behavior which naturally present themselves as ideas and images, by way of these effects, the ideas and the images, we discover that they have an organizing influence on the contents of consciousness. Literally, the word archetype is from, from uh, the, the Greek, and it means something like first molded or original, like, like when you make a, 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 is it like a lithograph print or, or some kind of print in art? It's the first thing, and then, then there's copies of that. So literally, it means something like that. But what's characteristic of the way Jung means it, um, uses that word, is that rather than being itself an image, an archetype is not an image in his usage. It's rather what shapes images and shapes ideas. Um, so it's a shaper of images and a shaper, a former of images and ideas, rather than itself being a specific shape or form. And what that means um, is that an archetype, in his usage, archetypes are actually not directly knowable. You never actually encounter an archetype. Um, it's just the, the sort of, as he puts it, the organizing structure to shape this or that image or this or that behavior or this or that perspective or idea. So that's one aspect, um, or at least of Jung's uh, meaning of images, uh, of archetypes, sorry. And another aspect is also to realize that archetypes interpenetrate. They're actually not separable. So this is also very, very important. And again, quoting Jung, um, he wrote, the fact is that the single archetypes are not isolated from each other in the unconscious. Actually, you know, we're, we're going to steer away from using that word unconscious because I think it takes things in a certain direction. It has too much baggage for us, and I want to... Uh, not use it and, uh, and allow things to open up in a different way. But he writes anyway, the fact is that the single archetypes are not isolated from each other, but are in a state of contamination of the most complete mutual interpenetration and interfusion. So they, they interpenetrate, they mix. You don't get one pure archetype. 
now, sometimes what's very common is for people is a tendency to want a kind of neat classification, um, actually of all kinds of things, Dharma concepts, this means that, and what does this exact term mean when the Buddha uses it this way and the links of dependent origination, but also in regard to archetypes. So the tendency to really want to define things very neatly and separate everything. Maybe that tendency itself is kind of archetypal. As Jung says, it's the archetypes shape ideas, perspectives. So that wanting a neat classification, taxonomy of things is, is also potentially an archetypal thing. It's very, very common, but it's a little bit mistaken some, somehow because they're always interacting, interpenetrating, mixing these archetypes. But let's make a distinction. So for Jung, the ar- an archetype is, is something that's first. It's kind of primordial. It has its roots in the sort of the dawning of humanity and pre-consciousness evolving into consciousness and it's dawning in, in our um, e- biological evolution and all that, um, partly. There's something first or primordial in time about it. So compare that meaning with um, James Hillman's um, sort of twist on, on the term, if you like, or evolution of, of the term. And um, here it's more that we sort of decide to view an image, if you like. Decide is maybe too strong a word, but, but we orient towards an image and view it as archetypal. So there's an adjective, rather an archetype. We, talk, we view an image as archetypal. And this is saying something more about the image, about its value, rather than its origins, if you like, in misty time or uh, something like that. So uh, we view an image as archetypal. Listen to this. Um, James Hillman writes, Any image termed archetypal is immediately valued as universal, transhistorical, basically profound, generative, highly intentional, intentional and necessary. I'll read that again because it's quite a dense sentence. Any image termed archetypal is immediately valued, so it's about value, and immediate means without any uh, anything coming between, immediately valued in, in the actual sense of the image itself, immediately valued as universal, that's what I said before, this beyond purely personal. It doesn't just apply to me. It's transhistorical. It's it's beyond time. It doesn't have its roots in history. It doesn't correlate necessarily uh, to coming from something historical in my personal history or otherwise. Basically profound. We're, we're giving it some kind of um, sense of it's, it's, it's fundamental in the psyche and deep, deep. Its roots are deep. Basically profound. Generative means that it generates, as I said, it generates ideas, perspectives, emotions, um, uh, other images, attitudes, all that. It's generative of, of all kinds of things. Um, it's highly intentional. This is what I alluded to earlier. It, 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 it wants something. It has a direction for us. And it's necessary, he says. There's this, this, this sense of necessity to the, to the image um, when it has this archetypal sense to it. So, in other words, or elaborating on that a little bit, it's the relationship with the image, the, the love um, 
from and to and in the whole image that's part of its archetypal nature. There's a sense of blessing that comes often with, with images that we see as archetypal. Some kind of blessedness or blessing with them, to them. They seem to make a demand of us, and I'm going to say I'm going to talk uh, much more about that aspect of demand. And they seem to open us up. Archetypal implies something's opening us up to, we could say, other dimensions of our being beyond just the ones that we're usually conscious to. There's something giving us, opening us up to a sense of our own depth, if you like, or the depth of, let's put it better, the depth of the psyche. And wrapped up in this in this meaning of archetypal as an adjective actually is <clears throat> what I alluded to earlier. It's when we see something in life or an event in life or, 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 a, or a thread in our life or an image um, and we see that experience as archetypal where, where in a way we're placing it in a kind of cosmology um, with regard to, let's use the word gods, but I, I want to explain more what I, what I mean by that, both cosmology and gods and, and what that might mean. But there's a sense of another dimension or depth to it. And we're placing it in a larger cosmology of significance, of meaningfulness, of beauty, of, of place. It has place and depth in that place. Now this, this might sound perplexing at this point, I'm hopefully going to talk more about it on this retreat, but there's something in that that's very alive. It's not abstract and it's not clunky. We'll come back to it later. It's not uh, uh, some kind of abstract philosophical idea. It's, it's a, a sense as well. Now, that's certainly not something we can prove. In fact, none of this is, is stuff we can prove. It's impossible. It would be impossible to prove that. Impossible to prove that the image actually makes demands of me of some some kind or other that I'll go into more. Impossible to certainly to prove this other cosmology involving what we could label in quotation marks almost gods. But we sense somehow this archetypal value. This, these qualities imbuing certain images, and that makes them archetypal. So we sense this as part of the soulfulness, part of the, the texture, if you like, of the image. Not so much the sensual texture, but the, the meaningfulness, soul texture of the image. We sense an image's archetypal value. But, and I really, really want to emphasize this, we're also recognizing that we are giving it that archetypal value. So there's no, um, in a way, truth claim here. It's, to me, this is quite a sophisticated uh, philosophical point. I can sense an image's archetypal value, and I will in all these different ways that I've just elaborated. <clears throat> but I'm also recognizing in a way that I'm giving it that value. It, that archetypal value of an image, the archetypal quality or characteristics of an image, do not come independent of the, the way of relating to it, the, the, the psyche's relationship to it. So all this implies, um, I can, uh, all this implies that the view, the way of relating, the way of looking uh, at an image is actually included in what we mean by the word image. You understand? So 
image actually includes, in the way that I mean the word image, it actually includes a certain way of relating to it that gives it this archetypal value and then senses that archetypal value in it. But I recognize, oh, I'm giving it that. The mind is giving it that. You understand? It's not inherently independently existing. It's still uh, empty. It's still dependent arising. But in the word image, I'm including in that a certain way of relating, way of looking, a certain view of it. And that's included in the very uh, concept image, in the very idea of the image. So when we talk about archetypes, the the point of, of that word, or archetypal, the point of that word and the value of it is not in categorizing, oh, it's this archetype or that archetype, or analyzing which archetype is this coming from. It's more emphasizing um, a way of looking or ways of looking that um, give, certainly, or find or sense, discover vitality, a uh, 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 an aliveness um, to the image and what it does for us that give and discover meaningfulness. And again, that doesn't mean meaning. Meaningfulness, vitality, depth, divinity, if we dare use that word, and I'll expand on what we possibly mean by that later on. Vitality, meaning, depth, divinity, in short, that are soul-making. Ways of looking that are soul-making. And I'll explain what I mean by that uh, tomorrow, hopefully. Or fill that word out. So that's the point and the value of, of using words like archetypal. It's pointing to ways of looking, relationships that open up another um, depth and richness and dimension for for the soul, for the psyche. So with all of that, we are... I'm open to all of this, as I said, but we, for the purposes of this retreat, what I want to emphasize more, what we're more interested in is, is the more, uh, if you like, iconic, poetic end of things, that those kind of images that, that are like icons or, or more poetic as opposed to narrative and more archetypal in the way that I just outlined, that, uh, that have more soulfulness to them. And that's partly why I was ambivalent about the exercise earlier in the afternoon, um, because while it's you know good exercise perhaps for some people, it doesn't much of that probably didn't have much soulfulness in it. What we're more interested in is a more iconic kind of images, poetic, archetypal, soulful images. Yeah. So let's pause here um, for a little while, as otherwise it's too much to take in, and then we'll we'll continue in a little while.